Welcome back. This is episode 148, I believe, of Herpological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And what do we have this week? We have an episode all about sort of snakes with eyes larger than their stomachs, I would say. Or perhaps, no, that's unfair. That's unfair. Because some of these snakes, they might have made the right judgment, but uh, have been caught out by uh, mm, sneaky or specialised or just perfectly <laughs> perfectly adapted prey defence mechanisms, I suppose. Yeah, it's not always their fault. I think going into this paper, I, like you, was sort of like, what are these silly little snakes been up to? And it's actually quite sad reading about all the ways in which snakes have met their demise. But yeah, these authors have basically done a big meta-analysis and they've looked through all the literature they could possibly dig up to find out different ways in which snakes have met their makers accidentally by making mistakes or just being generally unlucky with what they've eaten. And the paper's by Kornilov and Natchev and Lily White, and it's published in 2023, and it's entitled The Perils of Ingesting Harmful Prey by Advanced Snakes, published in Biological Reviews. Advanced snakes. No basic snakes here. These are the most complex advanced snakes you can imagine. Highly evolved. What do they call them? The... It's a very big word, which I find quite baffling. No, Alethinophidians are the advanced snakes. Yeah. This highly evolved Highly evolved. (laughs) Yeah, you don't like that, do you? They say it in the paper. I know they do. I find it such a funny term. Highly evolved. They've been evolving for so long. Yeah, it's like, like the idea of perfectly evolved or whatever. Most perfect being. Yeah, it's a bit much. It's a bit much. But, it's you know, you've got, to, you've got to try and sell your paper. So that's probably what they've done. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's still just, fun. Like, I'll, I'll it forgive is, it. It's fun. <laughs> it's a fun one. I was really excited when I saw this. And obviously, it's come out just the other day. And, yeah, one cool thing I found when I was reading this is this is actually the first time I've seen 4,000 snake species mentioned in a paper. It's the first thing that we've covered where that talks about the total number of snakes that are around, yeah. um, alive, extant. And yeah, there are now, they say approximately 4,000, but as far as I know, it is officially over 4,000, up from around 3,200 when I was 10. So snakes being discovered at quite a rapid rate. No, it is. I mean, they are. It's probably not going to stop there, right? Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. And I mean, I think some species of snake are only not being split into more species by virtue of the uh, restraint that geneticists are showing you know like you're fighting against if you're talking about exant species that's species that are about you're also racing against them disappearing right you've got to describe them faster than they're disappearing yep sad but true sad but true so we're going to talk about snake feeding and this takes me all the way back ben to probably one of my favorite episodes episode three that we did bodacious boas we were talking about boas constricting stuff so we're going to be looking at snakes eating there are a few things about snake eating that you should know they never chew their food i'm just going to go out and use uh, there's a never here there's a never i know we don't say never it's so brave i know (laughs) as far as i know they never chew their food no mastication for this nation and they usually swallow it whole um there's a few exceptions to that there are a few so some homolopsids remove their 
arms and legs of the crabs. And there's cat-eyed snakes and kukri snakes. They consume the internal organs of frogs and toads. Remember the kukri snakes were using those specialized large teeth that slice open the belly of yeah. those toads and Frog slurp up the delicious insides and avoid potential poisonous outsides. So if you're a toad, avoid True. kukri snakes at all costs. And there are, of course, some snail and slug-eating snakes in a couple of subfamilies which pull snails from their shelves with specialized teeth structures. They can sort of like po- poke their jaw in. But only if it's the, snail the correct up. clockwise or counterclockwise orientation, right? Exactly. Yeah. A mutation in those snails which flip their orientation of their shells could be extremely valuable. And That is fun. I mean, that is cool. So no mention of um, termite head-eating blind snakes are blind snakes advanced snakes or are those basic snakes i think they're not i don't think they're in the super family that this paper is talking about hence why they didn't get a mention but of course they are worth mention because they do nibble the heads off and they are cool because i'll never stop liking them i respect them a lot yeah so blind snakes and thread snakes are the only snakes that are not included in alathinophidia for order that we're talking about and yeah, I always like them. You know, Brahmini blind snake, I'll never stop banging on about it. You know, any animal which has a global distribution whose <laughs> origins can't be distinguished because it's That's such adaptable. a successful yeah. invasive species. Yeah. It's amazing. So yeah, the general theme is that snakes are eating things which are large. They're eating them whole for the most part. And they're actually one of the very few animals that can eat prey larger than themselves. They've got very stretchy bodies to accommodate the food. They also have very flexible mouths, which have many, many points of articulation. And that allows them to maneuver the food. And they call it the pterygoid walk. Pterygoid, pterygoid walk. And that is where they sort of walk using their mouths to swallow the food. So they have the food on the ground. Yeah, you can imagine... The food sitting still and the snake moving itself over the food as opposed to food being inserted into snake. That's exactly what happens. And obviously, you know, you're thinking about swallowing something large. If you're swallowing something gigantic, then that food is going to be in contact with your throat and your esophagus, the tube which food goes down to the stomach as it goes down. And of course, if you're swallowing something large, This leaves you at risk from things like spines and claws. And, you know, this paper is kind of a big meta-analysis looking at sort of the most common types of death in snakes when they're swallowing things. It's just sort of like categorizing them. But I think one of the most fun things for us to do would be to kind of go through some of the examples that they use in the paper and sort of recoil in horror at just how awful the deaths of these snakes have been. Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. It's one of these cases where you've got a very... Snakes obviously have a very particular body layout. So they sort of have a very particular set of problems that they have to overcome that a lot of other species just, just don't, basically. They're not set up to have these issues. Where do you want to start? What's uh... Let's go for the juvenile black belly garter snakes. Oh, black bellies because they're filled with delicious leeches. <laughs> right? I think it's actually they have black bellies and their name reflects it as well. Thumbnophis melanogaster. Melanogaster. And that is also assuming that the leeches are black and not all leeches are. Like Some you can get all sorts stripy. of weird and stripy ones and all sorts, can't you? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so these uh, juvenile black belly garter snakes, they naturally feed on these little leeches and they can actually be injured because if they eat the leeches, They eat them whole, obviously, as we've just discussed. Most snakes eat things whole. And Ben, in case you're wondering, these leeches aren't actually plain black. They're brown with a little vertebral Ah, stripe. 
and therefore the yeah. name of uh, your black belly uh, was it black belly garter snake? Yes. Has nothing to do with leeches whatsoever. <laughs> Confirmed. That was never in question, Ben. But yeah. it was by me. I <laughs> thought there was a you. beautiful case that their bellies were both black outside and inside. Whoa, black belly. Yeah. So apparently they eat these leeches, and they're alive in the belly. And then the leeches must just start chowing down on the internal organs of the snakes, and that causes them to die, which is terrible. Yeah. It it sounds horrific. <laughs> <laughs> truly horrific the idea of something being alive in my stomach is more than i can really take and the yes. idea that it would then start chowing down on my guts and sucking my blood out is really quite awful and the fact that like, they can die from that i wonder if a part of it is just because they get sort of like stuck in there if they suck on and then they end up eventually succumbing to the sort of juices and then they're stuck on anyway I don't yeah know. i mean the statement they have there is is excessively large leeches so, presumably, it's something to do with the scale of the leech that can overcome whatever, you know, internal digestive stuff going on. Like, it's not, I was going to say placated, that's not the right word, subdued <laughs> by being inside the snake. It's too big, it's too tough. <laughs> Placating the leech would be like, calm, calm down, calm down, oh, it's oh, going to be alright. Oh, I'm being be right. digested, it's fine, I'll just relax. So what other stuff have we got? They talk about how occasionally, sometimes, the prey type... Snakes aren't always sure whether they've actually killed it before they swallow it. So they use an example where a green iguana was completely swallowed by a boa constrictor. And then the researchers subsequently caught the boa constrictor and handled it. And often, uh, if you handle a snake when it's just eating a big dinner, it will regurgitate because they're not very able to get away when they're full and also it probably is a bit of a defense mechanism because well, it's bloody usually, disgusting isn't it? it yeah it really smells yeah and so yeah this iguana was sicked up by the snake and who knows how long ago it had been swallowed but it was still alive so that's an example where the animal hadn't been completely subdued and that one didn't actually kill the snake that was um, yeah so i was just thinking it being an iguana is quite important right because for your squamates compared to your mammals they tend to have a sort of lower metabolism so they're more likely to be able to survive a period of constriction yeah it's if you don't need as much stuff getting to your cells then you'll be able to survive for a longer period where your heart's being sort of prevented from getting nice fresh blood to all your limbs and organs and things right you'd be able to it is ghastly to think about but yes it's it's horrific but like be a reptile in that situation, you've got a better chance of getting out of it. Puts me in mind of the king cobras after they bite um, a monitor lizard, and you see the monitor lizard. There's life in its eyes, but it's it just ain't doing nothing. And it gets swallowed. Yeah. But obviously, boas don't have the luxury of venom. Yes, super great sort of point to make. It's like that's one of the reasons venom's so prominent in snakes and why you've got sort of constricting and things. You need some sort of mechanism to subdue the prey adequately prior to ingestion right you don't want a half awake thing being that <laughs> you know you're sort of trojan horsing something into yourself and putting it very close to vital organs you want that thing completely incapacitated in every way possible ideally dead yeah that's always been a rule for me when i eat things as well it's wise <laughs> the snakes know what they're doing <laughs> so let's talk about another sort of accidental one one of the things they talked about in this paper was Natrix tessellata. So this is dice snakes. You know, they're related mm. closely to the grass snakes we have here. They're sort of quite beautiful, blotchy snakes, which 
are usually found around water, sometimes around the coast. They've got that cute, like, colubrid googly eye look to them. Yeah, you love that googly eye look. I've actually seen one of these. I've seen a few of these, actually. I saw one in Crete, uh, and it was actually on a beach. So similar to this environment that they're going to be talking about in here. Basically, on the Bulgarian Black Sea coast, so we're in Europe, there's this locality called Balata Deer, and it's on the Bulgarian Black Sea, like I said. And basically, in this area, the river, a freshwater river, only a minor one, but it drains out into a little bay protected by all these concrete jetties. So where there are these concrete jetties, the fresh water is meeting the salt water and there's like a surprising and rapid change in salinity because of these like jetties Mm. and apparently little sticklebacks will come and swim down there and when they do they accidentally come into contact with saline water it's too salty for them probably wrecks their osmotic balance i would imagine it's like having a really bad hangover osmotic balance yeah and suddenly (sighs) the fish is just incapacitated unexpectedly and these little baby dice snakes will come along and they'll swallow down these incapacitated stick insects that are just sort of floating around stick insects sticklebacks stick insects <laughs> are you sure they're they get here. bamboozled and transform before their very eyes and <laughs> stick their insect form early onset dementia Anyway, so they're eating these uh, sticklebacks and they're getting stuck in their throat and killing them and it happened five times in yeah. the view of the researchers, which suggests it's probably not that uncommon of a event. There's something to remember with all this. It's hard to find a snake. Snakes have very low detection probabilities. They're tricky to find. They're sneaky, sneaky creatures. They're not sneaky, Ben. They're just trying their best. By sneaking. And it's very effective. Okay. Being sneaky is an effective strategy out there in nature. It's not to cast dispersions on them at all. No, it's, it's very wise to be sneaky. Add on top of that how frequently they eat which is not as common as, say, a mammal, right? You have one big meal and you take a long time to digest it, maybe eating once a week, whatever. So hard to find, unlikely to eat something. Then sort of combine those. You've got to find something that's hard to find and (laughs) doing a thing it doesn't do very frequently and also be an unlucky one that's sort of come a cropper from... So the sticklebacks are a problem because they've got spiky fins and edges, there's just so many steps of unlikelihood to be able to find to find a snake that's been... I was going to say outsmarted, but that's not even the case. It's, it's so unlucky in this case. Yeah, it is unlucky. And yeah, like you, yeah, so it must be relatively... Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're probably easier to find once they have eaten a stickleback. Well, definitely, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. Because once they've eaten a stickleback, then they're in trouble. Yeah, take, yeah. So you're more likely to find them. But it still strikes me as this is probably happening more frequently than people are observing you know you can imagine sort of a bird zipping down and nicking away a a tasty freshly dead snake can't you and oh yeah with a fish in its mouth like two for one brilliant so talking about other things you've obviously got fish spines which can be an issue for snakes they also mention the horns of different animals so obviously some lizards have horns those um horned toads which are actually lizards phrynosoma from America, they have horns and it's thought that they might have um, advantage in stopping them being eaten by snakes or at least killing snakes that try and eat them. Probably um, going for the slow approach on that one, trying to not be prey because they are dangerous prey. There's also African rock pythons. So they apparently seem to regularly consume this animal called a cob. Cobus cob is the scientific name. Cobus cob. And that's like a really posh antelope. And um, <laughs> A posh antelope, that's what you're going with, okay. Yeah. yeah, some of them have got quite big horns, although apparently 
four or five cases where they've actually eaten these cobs seem to have no horns. It's a possibility they're selecting to eat ones without horns, but obviously yeah. if you eat an antelope with big horns, it could cut you open. And then one of the craziest examples they had was Boiga irregularis, the brown tree snake. So this is a cat snake that's been introduced to Guam. We've talked about it a lot. It's the classic textbook example, along with the Burmese pythons in the Everglades of an invasive species of snake. And Which actually, this, there's some good examples of those guys eating crocs or alligators too big for them and there are. getting caught out by that. That's the image that immediately pops to mind when I think of snake eating something too big, because that's a monster snake eating something that's equally monstrous Maybe. and the both same image is monstrous creatures coming out badly. Yeah, you know that image of the bloated Burmese python floating on top of the water with an alligator's tail poking out of it? Yeah, I'll never forget it because it's just so sort of grim, but also incredible. Yeah. Yeah. A battle of the titans where they both lost. Yeah. What's even more mad, arguably, is that in Guam, brown tree snakes, they enter houses. Sometimes they're thought to be attracted by the smell of blood in indoor waste. And they've actually been found to eat blood-soiled tampons because they think it's food, which is extremely disgusting and very unfortunate for the snake because I'm fairly sure there's plastic in those and it's not probably going to come out very well. Yeah. But it just goes to show, you know, and there's other examples where snakes, they'll, they'll eat like fish that are dried out. So they'll just find like a dry fish that's washed up onto the bank, but all its spines are sticking out and it's dry and they eat that because it smells nice and then they just get the spines poking Wasn't out. Wasn't there another mention of them snakes eating dirt because they were... Yeah, sand. What was it below a below a like a bird roost where food had been consumed obviously up in the trees, but sort of remnants and the sort of smell of it was below the roost, and so the snakes sort of getting duped into thinking that the soil and stuff that smells very like all right that's prey or akin to prey, and getting duped that way too. Mm, so yeah, it really does emphasise the sort of importance of scent or olfactory sort of cues for snake predation, even when the thing that they're predating might not <laughs> really resemble a prey item in yeah, any way. it also kind of way. suggests a humiliating over-reliance on scent for the animal. I mean, if you're it, eating sand. It, yeah, if you... Because if you, <laughs> it smells like bird. Eating dirt because it, sm- <laughs> it smells of <laughs> digested fish or bird or, res- or mammal. Uh, have some respect for yourself. <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing, yeah. So, yeah, there was others. I actually thought there was a couple of things. There were a couple of sort of um, misconceptions, maybe, that I went into this paper expecting, preconceptions that were dashed by their findings. One of them was that animals, these snakes that were dying by eating, were not frequently eating the prey the wrong way around. You know, everyone knows. Yes. Most snakes try to eat things head first because then it tucks in nicely. Yes, the limbs go back in a certain way so you're not fighting against the sort of topography of the yeah. creature. I don't know why yeah. I said everyone knows. I don't think everyone knows that, but more people might know it now. But yeah, the snakes tucking things in and it's not a case that they're often eating things backwards and them getting stuck. They actually very seldom eat things backwards. And when they do, it wasn't a common cause for death in this paper. So right. it's not them eating things backwards. One thing that other that was surprising was that quite a few of the times it seemed as though the snakes had realized their mistake, tried to regurgitate the food, and it was then on regurgitation that it actually got stuck and they died, which sounds nightmarish, but also does make sense. Because if you're thinking things are mostly going down the right way, they're coming back out the wrong way. Yeah. So, I'm sticky outy. I'm sort of hesitant to hold any of this stuff as a sure thing because of how 
the authors are very clear of how sort of difficult it is to record this stuff. Like I, you know, I said about the likelihood of coming across it, but we have so many sort of other factors that make this very difficult to sort of get into, other than just knowing likelihood and the chances and therefore the sort of what the stuff you didn't observe looks like. You know, you're getting this information from a variety of different quality of natural history notes, essentially. That's where the bulk of their stuff came from. And they have varying levels of detail. And a lot of the time in natural history notes, you don't really know the full context of what's going on. You don't know how much interference there was with the animal. You don't know if the animal was aware of people prior to the people being aware of the animal, things like that. And like you said, with the regurgitation, it is something that is prompted by stress and can be a defensive thing. So I'm, you know, I'm not sort of doubting that it's the case that regurgitation is a risky time for these animals and that it's connected to these mortalities. It's more how many of those cases are regurgitations because of the snake being like, oh, this is going wrong. I better try and fix it. And how many are from people being around the area at the right time but not being aware but then maybe being aware of what's going on i'm it's difficult and they say again in the paper it's very hard to id what's killed the snake too a lot of the time because you're coming across this animal who knows who knows how long it's been there if you've found it already deceased and things along those lines so Mm. yeah it is hard one final grisly mode of death i wanted to touch on was that some prey are difficult to compress so um slow worms as an example those legless lizards they're robust they're very robust and can't squish hard yeah you can't squash them no No. why is that you just got unsquishable ribs i think they've just got like hard bony osteoderms right skin that make them hard so they've got like specialized skin bones they're armored basically yeah Basically armoured. I mean, they're still tiny and to the likes of us, harmless. But if you're trying to swallow one and apparently it's when it tries to go past the heart, obviously all the organs of snakes are pretty flexible in where they are and where they'll be. And they can move to an extent to accommodate prey going past because, you know, they've evolved with this need for things to sort of just shift when they need to. And, you know, I've found lots of snakes that have been run over and obviously run over snakes aren't the best example, but you know, when you cut open, if you were to look inside 10 individuals of one species, all their organs would be in different places. Um, mm. There's not a lot of consistency to it. And so uh, the heart obviously is a major barrier that things have to go past. And apparently it happens quite frequently that something's so hard as it goes past the heart, it has no flex and the heart gets pushed on too hard and it can cause cardiovascular failure, Yeah, which is another horrible and probably unexpected death for the snake. Very hard to diagnose from okay you've come across a dead snake with a half-eaten fish or whatever it's going to be hard to tell whether it what's killed it in that sort of Mm. circumstance because you're not going to see anything obvious that you're like all right there we go okay cause of death right there it's remarkable the amount of information these guys managed to dig up is sort of my point because it's remarkable how much they dug up but it's all completely tenuous (laughs) no i'm joking well, it's very hard to back any of this stuff up, isn't it? Because it's also yeah. done in a haphazard sort of sampling sort of way. And there's not really much you can do about it. They have a very good sort of paragraph to the end of sort of saying like, look, if you're going to be collecting this sort of information, please make sure to have X, Y, Z bits of information in your note because it helps uh, narrow some of this stuff down. But at the end of the day, some of the stuff is just going to be very difficult, to, like likely physiological cause of mortality. I mean, if I ha- found a snake with a half-eaten amphibian half-eaten toad and it had died because 
of some sort of heart failure as opposed to poisoning or poisoning instead of heart failure, I couldn't tell the difference. No chance. So mm, yeah, even if information sort of improved in the way it's recording, it's difficult to do. And but one I, other thing they highlighted, which was kind of interesting, was they were looking at where these cases came from. And of course, the vast majority are in the global north. The USA was heavily overrepresented because there are a lot of herpetologists in the USA. Quite a few examples in Brazil, too. Some from Europe, but very, very few from Africa, which is the, ca- the classic sort of study bias that we see one, with other papers and not much from Asia. Either. Asia is super minimal, too. We had four from India. What's that like? Yeah. One from Nepal, one from Thailand. Yeah, one from Thailand was the King Cobra from... It was, eating the bag. Right? Yeah, it was Big John. Yeah. Big John. Rest in peace. Didn't know you, but, you know, I heard about your greatness. Yeah, so let's move on, shall we? Should we move on to our species of the bi-week? We got brand new snake family. Yeah. All right, all right. So this is by Das Greenborn, Mayeri, Bauer, Burbrink, Raxworthy, Weinel, Brown, Becco, Powells, Rabibosia, Russell, Lemonanana, Merila. 2023, this was published. Ultra-conserved elements-based phylogenomic systematics of the snake superfamily Alapoidae with the description of a new Afro-Asian family. <sighs> Based so of so- the snake. That's about what I, what I understood. Yeah, molecular phylogenetics and evolutionists. Oh, description, that's a word I know. A lot of buzzwords, a lot of jargon. We only read those out, well, partly because Ben insists, but also because (laughs) it it just goes to show... Well, I want people to be able to find the paper. There's no use listening to a podcast and being like, oh, they were talking about this cool paper. No idea what it was. (laughs) I don't know who wrote it. I don't know where it's from. But anyway, so yeah, we're talking about this new family they have got. So they just did this big, big study into the family trees of the snake superfamily Elapoidae, which contains a hell of a lot of species, especially a lot of the very, very, very cool venomous snakes that people know about. So Elapoidae, it contains the family Elapidae, but also a few others, which you may have heard of. Lamprophidae, Atractaspididae, Samophidae. There's the other ones. And now, as of this paper, we got a new one coming in. And they have called it Microlapidae. And I realise at the minute I've just been saying loads of things that end in idae that probably don't mean anything to anyone at all. <laughs> and that's kind of what families are. When that's, it comes kind to of, that's, that's kind of it, yes. <laughs> kind of the point of it. So, yeah. yeah. So nice try way and understand. categorising and separating out similar groups and things. Yeah, but... but uh, so this new family that they've erected, Microlapidae, basically they realized after doing this big phylogeny of all the, of many of the venomous snakes, obviously, yeah, Vapiridae is not, not part of it, but these venomous snakes in the superfamily Alapoidae, they've essentially realized that there was a few that just didn't fit into any of the existing families. And those were species in the genus Microlaps and also this weird snake called Brachiophis <laughs> from Somalia. <laughs> Yeah, there's three species in the in the genus uh, Microlapse and there's just one in Brachiophis and they're just so weird and they're genetically distinct and they deserve to be their own family. So now they are. I mean, these snakes are obscure, mate. Like there's photos of the Microlapse species, but I couldn't find a picture of Brachiophis. No, I focused on finding little uh, Microlapse mulleri as it's the the type. Yes. What's the yeah. word? Specimen, I guess? Yeah. Type. But, um, g- big head honcho snake that represents the entire family. The Don. Yeah. The Don. 
And it's downright adorable. It's a lovely, sort of quite slim, beautifully striped, sort of pale yellow and black snake with its tail looking very similar to its head. So it's just this beautiful case of symmetry. Oh uh... uh, yeah, they are a little bit too symmetrical for my liking. The one of the species in the <laughs> genus Microlaps bicoloratus that is known as the Kenya two-headed snake for that ah, reason. That explains mm. a lot. But just going back to the other genus Brachiophis, one species Brachiophis ravioli, which kind of ravioli, but it's named after someone. Not the pasta. Called, called revoil, but it's known as revoil's short snake, and one of the type specimens is about 25 centimetres long, with a tail of only 1.5 centimetres. So this tiny little, tiny little <laughs> nugget of a tail. Assuming yeah. that's its full tail and it hadn't got, got got by something. I assume they could tell. You know, it's like those um, cylindrophus sausage boys. Yes. They don't have a tail much. It's just like no. a little spike. Yeah, it's just... So I imagined it was a complete tail. <laughs> just a stub. It's oh, weird. They're they fun. Basically poo out of their end. So... Yeah. The etymology of this new family, um, they're not actually sure. So Butger, back in the day, gave the um, etymology. He never actually gave the etymology for the genus Microlapse, but they think it's from the Latin adjective micro, which means small, and elapse, which means sea fish or serpent. Which is pretty strong, isn't it? It's just a little lapid in some senses. Yeah, exactly. Apparently, um, there used to be a snake genus elapse, which was like one of the early genera of venomous lapid snakes. So basically the name of this one is just micro elapse. For some reason they named the original, oh, serpent, sea fish or serpent. I don't know why you'd only have one rule, one word, but I guess sea serpents were believed to exist. And I suppose they do exist in the form of sea snakes. But I found that a little bit confusing, but yeah. (laughs) That whole thing is probably a little bit confusing. I think one word meaning two things is exceptionally common. So I'm not going <laughs> to get hung up fair. on it. But yeah, these snakes are rear-fanged venomous. And like I said, they're a bit of a mystery. There's there's not really many pictures online. But they looked at when these snakes diversified from their closest common ancestor. And it was in the paleogene. So after the KPG mass extinction, we talked about that Eocene diversification of snake mm-hmm. Feeding structures, didn't we? Diets, After the dinosaurs went yeah. extinct, snake diversity and diet flourished. Suddenly there was all these niches and the dinosaurs weren't around anymore to ruin things. So snakes just started tucking in, <laughs> that was our evolutionarily time. speaking, over many, 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 many years. And there's probably a similar story here. Um, it was after that mass extinction of the dinosaurs that... Uh, I got the elapoids. impression from the paper that the whole like Diversi- rapid diversification was kind of the reason why this has been so difficult to work out because you've got a lot of changes over a relatively short period of time so it makes sort of resolving trees quite tricky Mm, yeah i don't know if that is actually the case but certainly that was the impression i got yeah no i think that's the case yeah yeah i think they i think they mentioned that in the paper but um yeah so we got a brand new brand new family of snakes yeah no new species described but just microlapse and brachiophis going into a new Sort of family east of Africa, yeah, generally Eastern African radiation. Yeah, so there you go. Have you got any other business for this episode, Ben? I don't. Nope. No, any other business from me? No, I don't think I've got any either. In fact, I definitely don't. 
Yeah, so I think all that really remains to be said is that if you want to get in touch with us, you can, herphighlights at gmail.com. If we've got any corrections, we've done anything, misrepresented anything, made a mistake, let us know. Uh, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we will be back next week. So, yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.